how the defendants or adverse witness depositions goes will usually determine the outcome of the case, whether you're going to be able to resolve the case for a fair amount pre-trial or if it's going to go to trial. So what I do is I send out document requests with a filed lawsuit. And I ask for the defendant to give me the documents that what I believe will help me for my arguments of the case. I do it early. As soon as I file the lawsuit, I get the documents early and I see what the documents show. Always remember this, whatever the documents say, that's usually what happened. Don't believe anything the witnesses are going to posture for you, if you will, because they're going to go over that with their lawyer for their arguments. What the documents say is probably what happened. Good morning and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. As always, the discussions on this show are not intended to provide legal advice. If you have an individual legal situation, it's important that you marshal your facts and speak to an attorney so they can give you individualized advice. In a similar vein, any of the opinions that are offered on this show are not those of Howard County Community College, its faculty, staff, employees, or anyone else associated with HCC. And with that caveat, I'd like to welcome to the program, John Lepler. Welcome, John. Bob, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So tell us a little bit about your practice and what you do. Sure. So I'll start with, I'm New Jersey born and raised. Uh, I do a hundred yeah. <laughs> I do 100% personal injury work. I uh, have my own firm right here in Towson, Maryland, Lepler Injury Law. We help injured victims, persons who suffer injuries and no fault of their own, motor vehicle accidents, wrongful death, negligent security. I am the only attorney in the firm with a couple assistants, and we represent injured victims in wrongful death cases or catastrophic injury victims uh, throughout the state of Maryland. And if one wanted to find you on the web, is there some mechanism? Oh, absolutely. You go right to Google, you can type it right in, Lepler Injury Law, Towson Injury Lawyer, Towson Personal Injury Lawyer, or you could certainly call me at my firm line. I am one of the more responsive people I know. It could be the New Jersey, New York mentality. Right at my number, 443-955-1989. And I really make it part of the brand of my firm to really respond to current clients within 24 hours. And for new cases, you're going to be talking to me. You won't be shafted to somebody else. You're going to be talking to me. It is one of the things that intrigued me about looking at your website that I'm in a law firm with my college roommate. So we've known each other since the dawn of time. Well, and that's kind of our shtick is that we, you actually talk to a lawyer when you call. If you call, your lawyer will actually call you back if they're not available, that kind of thing, which is oddly a novelty in the sort of work that you do and that we do. I've been practicing for several years now, and I've seen it way too many times. Clients or potential clients, for one, they do not like talking to assistants, legal assistants, rather. They want to speak to a lawyer. They see you on the website. They go to your website. They want to talk to you. And that's the brand that I like to build. I like speaking to my clients, and I it may sound cliche. I absolutely love being a lawyer, and I love helping the little guy, but I really do. So what first motivated you to become a lawyer and when? Sure. So I'll have to go back to my college days. I was always into sports. Believe it or not, I wanted to be the next Jerry Maguire or Drew Rosenhaus a while back. Sports agent. Sports agent. There you go. Representing professional athletes, big time baseball, football, basketball. Quickly realized that that's maybe too far of a pipe dream. But <laughs> I always loved sports. I always loved competition. And I looked at different backgrounds of persons, thought I was going to work in the sports, realized most of the big wigs in the sports industry have law degrees. 
went to law school, took the LSAT, came down here to the University of Baltimore, thought I was going to stay in New Jersey. Didn't happen. Once I got into law school, I took a mock trial class and I fell in love with litigation. I fell in love with advocacy and the rest is history. I knew from the get-go, having been a lifeguard, a cook, a garbage man from my town a while back in high school and college, I liked fighting for the little guy. I felt like I could make a difference for them and I could relate to them. I love it every single day. I do find that having had what many would regard as jobs that are not, you know, important or highbrow. I mean, I work a lot in kitchens, you know, I pot washer, dishwasher, you know, trash collector, that kind of thing, that they do give you some perspective on, on reality that are it's lost on other people. And that's invaluable in dealing with people in life who are at a disadvantage. Without question, you can relate to them. You understand what they've been through. And I'm going to be honest for you. You see me in my quote unquote warrior clothes today in my nice salmon tie and jacket. My clients love it nothing more when I'm, they walk in, say hello for a client meeting, I'm in my jeans and a polo. Think, oh, I can relate to that guy. That guy is like me. They love nothing more. I think having clients feel like you're on their team is something that is elusive for some lawyers and is easy for others. And it sounds like you have a, a pretty good formula for establishing that. There's no question about that, Bob. I give my clients my email. I give them my cell phone. They can text me anytime they like. It's simply how I like to do it. And I know there is a cliche that, you know, some lawyers like to treat their clients like family instead of just another file. I really take that to heart. I asked about my clients' lives. I asked them about their children's lives, their married lives. I become very, very interested and, you know, they appreciate me for it. And what does it do for me in return? They trust me 100% with their case where it matters. They expect me to do a great legal job, an excellent legal job. That's expected. What they really don't expect, though, is the lawyer-client relationship to be so good. Responsive, they can trust me, everything else under the sun that goes with that. And you can look me up on Google. My clients love me. Not only do they believe I do a great job for them legally, but the client service experience that they have, they sing my praises to the world. You know, that is invaluable. You can advertise till you're blue in the face, but ultimately I find the Google reviews that we have, and it sounds like you have people read them and they know they're true and it makes them want to come to you, you know, exclusively. It's a very valuable commodity and not easily attained. And also you got to be careful with it because if you do something that people don't like, then it can sully your image. And, you know, it's just going the extra mile for people is important. No question about it, Bob. Knock on wood, my firm has yet to have a very, very negative review. But who are the people that usually leave reviews? Well, the people that had a fantastic experience or the people who had a horrible experience. You're absolutely you know, right. Client service is extremely, extremely important. And there's no, using your term blue in the face, there's no shortage of lawyers who, you know, could be out there and quote unquote toot their own horn. But I've been able to develop a reputation where I'll let my results and my clients' reviews speak for themselves. So how did you find your way to having your own solo practice? Believe it or not, I actually had a Facebook post about this earlier today. I looked at my portfolio, and I can't believe where I am right now with a handful of wrongful death cases and very serious injury cases, cases where my representation in their cases can really, really change their lives and the family's lives. And I thank in that post, this dovetails, Bob, to what you just asked me. I thank my mentors every single day. And I've worked for 
small, prominent boutique plaintiffs or personal injury firms right out of law school that let me really spread my wings. As you could tell, I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to kid myself. I have a boyish look. There is no question about that. Anybody? I think that's valuable. I have a very boyish look for to think, wait a minute, where's that old man with the gray suit? You know, it's, that's not me, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not that old. But my mentors have let me seriously, quote unquote, spread my wings on their dime with their clients. Let me make mistakes. Let me build my craft. Let me go, you know, do first chair jury trials out of the gate of law school, which is, it's rare. It's rare that you'll have a mentor that'll let you do that because, well, I know next to nothing out of law school, like everybody else, where we all know law school doesn't really teach you much about how to practice law. But my mentors and my former employers, I thank them from the bottom of my heart because they taught me from the get-go how to represent clients of personal injury cases and take them to the finish line. So apropos what you were just talking about, do you think there is some mechanism to make law school actually useful in the real world? And if so, what would it be? Sure, Bob. So I have a couple of quick thoughts. Number one, there must be a clinical course, actual practical experience in taking defending depositions. Anybody who is in civil litigation knows depositions are the cream of the crop. They really are the meat and potatoes of civil litigation. I'm presenting about this at the Legal Summit Conference later in June, getting the key admissions you need to win a trial when taking adverse witness depositions. Because the truth is, logically speaking, whatever a witness testifies to at a deposition, they must testify to at trial either on cross-examination or on direct examination, because if they don't, as lawyers, we all know the magic words, impeachment is on the horizon for them. That needs to be done in law school, especially if you're in a big firm, you're probably working for five to 10 years, maybe not necessarily seeing the courtroom, but you are taking and defending depositions. In boutique firms, especially as a plaintiff's lawyer, my job is not to go to trial and win. My job is to get everything ready for trial and get the best outcome for my client. And that is usually a pretrial settlement. Very, very rarely will we have to go to trial. So that is the number one thing that I think that law schools need to do. They need a clinical course in taking and defending depositions. Number two, I strongly believe in the third year of law school, it should be an absolute requirement that every single student takes the entire year, they have to they have to go into clinical practice for themselves. They have to work for a private law firm, whether it be criminal defense, property law, civil litigation, or work for the government and in, in the prosecutor's office or public defender's office, and have the opportunity to get into court with a licensed attorney and actually represent clients. Law school does a horrific job, really, they do a horrific job on getting young law school grads ready to practice law. You have to learn that on the job for, for years and years and years. Law school needs to be a little less academic, so to speak, and a little more practical. Makes a lot of sense to me. You had the unique experience, as did I, of having, in my view, I viewed it as sort of an irresponsible act on the part of my employers. <laughs> they had me trying jury trials within a year of you know being admitted. And I, I, my first trial that I ever had, I had not seen a trial ever. And it was a medical malpractice case against two very prominent defense lawyers. And, you know, fortunately, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I did a competent job and they were kind of 
back in those days, I had a more youthful look. And so I didn't think they wanted to pick on me so much in front of a jury. <laughs> and so the outcome was good. And it made me more confident in my capabilities going forward. And it sounds like you kind of had a similar experience. Oh, oh, without question, Bob. I remember my first two trials I lost. They were stinkers, so to speak, but I didn't necessarily realize it. Why? Because I had no experience. But my first employer let me spread my wings and, you know, get out there and try to make it happen in front of the jury. We lost at the jury. And I will say this, and I've actually seen this for real. If there's any trial lawyer out there that says that they've never lost a case or have a 95, 99% win record, I can nearly guarantee you for everybody watching that, that they only take cases to trial that should really settle because there's clear liability or they haven't tried that many cases. I have lost, I have won several, I have lost several trials. And I will say this too, as a plaintiff's trial lawyer, from what I've learned, at least my wisdom, and the insurance companies all know me by now, they will provide higher settlement offers to the lawyers that they know who are not afraid to go to trial and lose. Why? Because they understand that that lawyer usually gets trial ready and he's, he's not afraid to go to the mat, whether win or lose, he's going to be prepared. My third trial, though, for my first employer, I'll never forget. It was my first jury verdict. Very, very, very nice client. It was a hit and run. He was a pedestrian. I'll never forget it. He was one of the nicest men man I've ever met. He only had about $5,000 in medicals, and we had everything lined up. The other insurance company was Erie Insurance. I ended up calling adverse witnesses. I called the claims adjuster. I was the only attorney on the case. I remember Judge Barry Williams objecting to some of my closing arguments so much because I was just going way over the edge, and I'll never forget it. And I remember two and a half hours later, the jury came back and awarded my client over 10 times medicals. And That's fantastic. Seeing my client, yeah, I, I mean, it wasn't, wasn't huge, it wasn't a huge case, but it was the biggest, it was one of the biggest moments, quite frankly, in my legal career and in my client's life. He started tearing up and he hugged me. We stood up and he hugged me in front of the jury. And I will never, ever, ever forget that. And Bet you got a good Google review out of that one. I did. <laughs> and it's, you know, it just kind of went on from there. There is no, and I want to make sure that everybody on here hears this. Your job is not to go to trial and win. Your job really is to get the best possible outcome for your client. If you set everything up for trial, that will usually happen in a pre-trial settlement. I think I have one client out of, I don't know, 500 that I've represented that actually wanted to go to jury trial to quote unquote, send a message. But winning a jury verdict for a plaintiff and awarding them damages is the most gratifying thing as a plaintiff's lawyer. The other would be cross-examining a defendant in front of a jury. <laughs> and that kind of seems like that is in part the theme of your presentation at the Bar Summit. It is, it is. My theme at the bar summit, I mentioned it earlier, is sure. how to effectively take adverse witness depositions, getting the key admissions that you need a trial. And for me, I have a unique out of the box, entirely different process than to what most plaintiff's lawyers do. What they usually do is they file a lawsuit, they wait a little time, they'll send routine discovery requests, interrogatory. Now, just so our listenership is aware of it, sure. we've talked about the discovery process before, but it's it's the pretrial informational exchange between each side in a lawsuit. Bob, thank you very much for clarifying sure. that. It's um, a little, we get inside baseball sometimes in this show. Okay. And, and so, I, I, you know, 
So in this informational exchange, as you say, people traditionally send out written questions called interrogatories, and they send out requests for documents and that sort of thing. And I gather you have a somewhat different method. I have a very, very, very different approach. Very, very quickly with these written questions, what it almost always gives the defendant the opportunity to do is review the entire case with their lawyer. They get very familiar with what's going on in the case. They get very familiar with the plaintiff's theory of going to trial and their arguments they're going to make. I am totally unorthodox. I treat adverse witness depositions like blind cross-examinations at trial. I really don't know much. What I do is I start preparing for adverse witness depositions from the first day I accept a case before I even file a lawsuit. How the defendants or adverse witness depositions goes will usually determine the outcome of the case, whether you're going to be able to resolve the case for a fair amount pretrial or if it's going to go to trial. So what I do is I send out document requests with a filed lawsuit. And I ask for the defendant to give me the documents that what I believe will help me for my arguments of the case. I do it early. As soon as I file the lawsuit, I get the documents early and I see what the documents show. Always remember this, whatever the documents say, that's usually what happened. Don't believe anything the witnesses are going to posture for you, if you will, because they're going to go over that with their lawyer for their arguments. What the documents say is probably what happened. So I review those. And after I review them, I ask for the adverse witness or the defendant's deposition extremely early. And I make them uncomfortable from question one of their depositions. Some lawyers will go through what are called ground rules. They'll ask the witnesses a series of questions about a deposition process, or have they ever taken a deposition before, or whatever the case may be. And it'll get the witness very, very, very comfortable with the process. You don't want that to happen. I've done it several, several times where I just go into a deposition. I anticipate that the witness has already had time to speak with their lawyer about the process, about the case. And I ask them, you know, what did my client do wrong? <laughs> it right, may sound strange, but, you know, I get the answer I want. And whatever they testify to in that deposition, they are stuck with for the rest of the case. How often do you find that the documents that you've previously gotten contradict what gets said in response to your first question at the deposition? All the time, Bob, 100%. <laughs> okay. I mean, that, that's a pretty effective mechanism then. Correct. They give me an answer. And then, you know, after that, I show them the document. They immediately change their tone because they're not going to deviate from what they said in the document. It's not going to happen. So just out of interest, how much level of cooperation do you get from the insurance defense lawyers in providing you all the documentation that you're seeking? That's a good question, Bob. I would say for the most part, not great cooperation. <laughs> their, okay. job, their job is to defend their client. They're going to make us as plaintiff's lawyers fight tooth and nail for certain documents that we know are there. We just have to get them. You're going to have to file a motion to compel. I don't even do that. What I do is I usually ask the witnesses at their deposition because they're so nervous and thrown off by my questioning to go back, look for the document, do some research and give it to their attorney. It works for me every single time. I will make them so nervous with my aggressive line of questioning that they're going to comply. 
<laughs> so when you say aggressive, is it your demeanor or just the specific questions themselves or some combination? Some combination of them all. And I don't mean being a pit bull. I don't mean being totally disrespectful. That's not what I mean. There are very rare circumstances where you have a right to be disrespectful of the witness. If you're trying to prove fraud or some sort of deceit, something, something very, very bad the defendants did, then sure, be disrespectful all you want to the witness. I am telling you to do that. However, for the most part, I'm not disrespectful. I'm just very persistent. I treat it like a cross-examination at trial. Every single lawyer is taught, always ask leading questions at trial. You should be testifying when you're cross-examining a defendant at trial. That is exactly- In other words, couching your questions in such a way that suggests an answer so the jury that's hearing it will reach some of the same conclusions you have. You nailed it on the head, Bob. You should be, I am arguing my case at the deposition and I'm wanting the defendant or, or that witness at a deposition to say yes or no to my answers. And I will say this, depositions, you're not time crunched by a judge. There are certain rules of evidence that do not apply at depositions. And you should really ignore the opposing attorney or, or the attorney representing the witness because for the most part, their objections, they're putting on a face for their client. They're pretty much meaningless. You should ask a question five or 10 times if you need to, to try to get an answer out of the defendant. It'll happen. You just got to be persistent. So how obstreperous are the defense lawyers at your depositions? <laughs> it varies. It varies, but I'll give you an example. Without giving names, I had a big fraud successor liability case. Recently, I had depositions last November of the defendants, owners of the companies, and as well as some of their employees. Uh, it was a big law firm that was representing the witnesses at their depositions. I realized very quickly they were not prepped whatsoever. They weren't prepped at all. You know, I got all the admissions I needed and then some, but there were certain times where the attorney would, you know, yell at me, scream at me, tell her to not interrupt her, force me to call the judge, all kinds of stuff. And you just got to, for the most part, you should ignore it as long as possible. Let it happen. But the obstructionist attorney embarrass themselves in front of their own client. If you need to argue with them on the record, never leave it to chance. Always leave everything on the record that a court reporter is typing out. But for the most part, just ignore them. Move on. Keep pressing. So I'd be interested in your view at trial of the importance of opening statements. Do you have any feelings about that? I do. I think it's critical. I do think, Bob, that some trials are, in fact, won or lost on opening statements. I will say this, juries understand it as the judge instructs the jury at trial that opening statements are not evidence. You know, a lot of times some jurors are very smart. They, you know, they understand, they want to hear what the witnesses have to say, not necessarily what the lawyers have to say about the situation. But making an effective opening statement, it is crucial in, you know, going to a long way. And I will say this, the jury is like a roadmap. They like a story. They want to hear a story. And you need to give that to them from the first time you get the chance to speak to them, which is at an opening statement. And I will say this about an opening statement, though, and I have been burned by it in the past. Trust me. Do not make a promise that you cannot keep to the jury. They will remember it, and they will hurt your client for it. So do you interweave your opening statement and your examinations and your closing argument in some manner? All the time. Whatever I say in my opening statement and my closing argument, excuse me, are exactly what I tell the jury is going to come out from the evidence. 
I tell the jury, this is what's going to happen in my opening statement. And I also tell them in my, and tell them when I'm back before them, after the evidence, after the closing argument, it's going to be the exact same thing because I'm making that promise to them from the outset and I follow through with it. So in your openings, do you try and reconcile the conflicting evidence that the defendants thinks it means this and the plaintiff thinks it means this, or how do you deal with what the other side's going to say? Sure. So I make a few brief statements about that, but I do want to kind of piggyback on what you just said, Bob, into how I make my trial presentation. If it's going to trial, every single case has weaknesses for both sides, every sure. single one. I bring that out early. I will mention that in the opening statement, and I will mention that in my direct examination. I will make sure that I bring out any weaknesses in my case during the first time that I get to speak. What I find that happens is the jury, they find me far more credible. And credibility, as every single lawyer knows, goes an extremely long way at trial in front of a jury, especially, of course, when you're asking in a civil jury trial, you're asking a jury the bottom line to award your client money for compensation for injuries. You got to have the credibility there. And speaking candidly, presenting candidly and opening with any witnesses you have goes a very long way. Do you find that, I mean, occasionally you have cases where the evidence is sort of irreconcilable. Now, you know, I try and come up with a formulation all the time that says the defense is going to say this, and here's why they say this, but it's far more likely that what we're saying is true, blah, blah, blah. But sometimes there's just facts that independent witnesses interject into these things that make both the plaintiff and the defendant seem somewhat inaccurate. And I wonder how you deal with situations like that. How I reconcile that, Bob, and that, you know, that happens all the time, especially in, you know, motor vehicle accident cases where it could come down to he said, she said. It is my job as the lawyer to gather all the documents I have, and that's my job in opening and closing. I need to put into the juror's mind that what does common sense tell you, given the evidence? What is more likely than not? And it's my job to portray the picture of what the common man using everyday life scenarios, what's the more possible outcome? And obviously, it's my job to paint it and portray it favorable to my client's version of how everything occurred. So kind of going backwards into this, and it wasn't my intention, but the process of picking a jury is called voir dire, to see and to speak. And I wonder what your experience is with that in terms of how honest or insightful jurors are about their prejudices and feelings that come into play when rendering a verdict. Well, I, <laughs> I'll start with this, Bob, and we all know this. I don't want to be on a jury. You probably don't want to be on a jury. And everybody else who goes into the jury pool probably doesn't want to be there that day. You know, they have jobs, they have obligations. They know they're going to be sitting there for all day, potentially several days, listening to a trial. And for the most part, trials are very boring. But when you're at the bench during voir dire and you're listening closely to what some of the some of the potential jurors, excuse me, have to tell the judge about some of their impartiality, things like that. I pay very close attention to some of the other answers that they've given to, to some of my questions. I always, I take voir dire very, very, very seriously, especially in personal injury cases. I think cases are won or lost probably on jury selection as well. How I, and I can usually tell from other answers about the background of potential jurors, what I believe they're 
impartiality and biases are going to be. So by the time some overarching question, and it's kind of meaningless because everybody's going to say they're impartial to get out of a jury. By the time that question comes, I already have a good idea of what any potential juror's bias is going to be. And you're able to strike them. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I would like to say, John, that we're running out of time. I really appreciate your coming on. And I wondered if you would, again, describe for our audience the name of the program you're going to be given at the summit in Ocean City in June. Sure. Before I continue, I could honestly talk with you for hours, Bob. I, had I think no idea. that was about 30 minutes. But anyway, so yeah, the name of my program is, it's going to be a lecture at the, uh, the MSBA Legal Summit in June, June 2nd, which is a Thursday at 1130. It's how to take adverse witness depositions, getting the key admissions that you need to win at trial. I literally do this, I don't want to say every single day, but several times a month, probably taking over three to 400 adverse witness depositions. And I have a very unorthodox approach that works for me. And I want to share that with the world. I will be fascinated to watch your program and would like to thank you for appearing today. It's been a privilege, Bob, and I want to thank you so much. And I want to thank Chris as well for having me too. Absolutely. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.